Well, thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday morning. And the week is moving along nicely. The weather is improving nicely. Still quite a bit of fog in the province. Boy, I'll tell you, it was heavy yesterday. I've heard reports of people that were in and around the Davidson area scared to actually drive across the highway because they couldn't see. And, of course, that two-lane highway up to uh, between Saskatoon and, and Regina can be can be dangerous, full of traffic, and uh, that, that, that fog continues this morning as we get warm air warming the ground, combining with the cold air. This is back to my old weather days, by the way, on global TV, but that's ultimately what causes the fog, right? It, it hits the dew point and fog forms and makes it very, very tough. So take care this morning if you are out and about. The fog is expected to lift later today, and uh, much of the province will see mild temperatures and some sunshine. Well, we've got another uh, great show planned today, and I'm looking forward to opportunities for you and I to talk and weigh in on the discussion. We talk a lot about food prices, savvy shoppers watching for food to go on sale, which is why I think we saw so much shock when Loblaws announced that it was discontinuing its 50% sticker days. But that concern was heard by the grocery chain, and they decided to retrace their steps. We've got... Sylvain Charlebois joining us from the Agri-Food Institute to discuss this, and we want to hear about some of your shopping hacks, the things that you do to ensure you're saving the maximum amount of money while you're feeding your family. Also, later in the show, we're going to continue the discussion to see how your favorite restaurant is affected by the current food prices. Are they jacking up the prices? Do they have to lay off staff? We're going to check in with the hospitality Saskatchewan crew later this morning. And we've got a doctor who's been consulting with the province of Saskatchewan on the implementation of this recovery-oriented system of care. It's the same doctor who agrees with the decision to step back from a few of the current forms of harm reduction that has many of us thinking that we're going the wrong way. So we'll hear why the doctor says this is the right thing to do, and then we'll get your thoughts on what you think on that as well. Coming up a little bit later on in the show, but first, time for the big talker. Let's get out of business, shall we? Welcome. Let's begin. The Evan Bray Show, the big talker. Well, we are well now into the second week of the inquest into the murders on James Smith Cree Nation, a nearby community of Weldon that happened September the 4th of 2022 at the hands of Miles Sanderson. Senior reporter Lisa Schick has been in Melford for the last couple of weeks following the trial and joins us live this morning. Lisa, thanks so much for making some time for us. Yeah, good morning. So we didn't get a chance to chat yesterday. Tuesday was a fairly heavy day with focus and testimony on Sanderson's release from custody. He had a few breaches of his conditions. Walk us through what you heard at the inquest on Tuesday. Well, I guess first, people have to be able to understand, you know, the different kinds of parole and release that a person can get. There's day parole where you are uh, out of prison, but there's a specific place that you have to sleep, you have to go back there. There's full parole where they don't really control that part. And then there's statutory release. Now, parole is is kind of a privilege. It's something you apply for, you may or may not get it. There are kind of timelines on that. Statutory release, it is legislated that you have to be considered for statutory release at two-thirds of your sentence. Now, it was explained that they like to be able to give statutory release, they like to be able to give parole, because at that point, the offender is out in the community, they are uh, in kind of the real world, but they have restrictions, they have conditions, they have somebody checking up on them, supervising them, making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So 
Miles Sanderson, he was not approved for parole. He didn't get day parole or full parole. What he did get was statutory release. Now, he did breach his conditions on statutory release three times. The first time, he was put back in jail for a little while, then released again. The second time, they deemed it kind of unintentional. He didn't really understand his conditions that he couldn't do that. And then the third time was the last time. They put out a warrant, and they never found him. He never got back in police custody until after the killing. What about yesterday? We heard continued testimony yesterday. What was covered? Yesterday we heard about his time in prison, kind of the programming that he did and how he did in that programming. Now we heard that, you know, he did uh, the introductory programming. He did this high-intensity programming that was meant to kind of help him regulate himself better, I guess, for lack of a better word. It, it, it went on anger management. It went on kind of cultural things, uh, Indigenous cultural things. And we heard that he did really well. At first, he was kind of standoffish, which you might be able to expect. But then, you know, he he made progress in these areas. We heard that uh, at the end, when he kind of graduated, when he completed the course, he was really proud of that. And he even, like, beaded a lanyard for one of the facilitators, saying how much it helped that he had this person there for him. And in both cases, both days, when asked, these people said, you know, they never would have thought that Miles Sanderson would have been able to do what he did. They never would have predicted that would have happened. Talking with senior reporter Lisa Schick this morning, covering the inquest into the murders on James Smith, Cree Nation, and Weldon. So part of the benefit of, of having you there, Lisa, not only, of course, are you are you able to tell us what you're hearing in the inquest, because all of this information is open to the public. However, once the inquest is over, the information isn't provided somewhere else. So the ability to have you keep us up to date is important. The other part of it, though, I think, is the ability that you have to speak to people that are there. Lots of family, lots of community members that are there. And it sounds as though community members have been expressing some displeasure with some of the testimony. I I heard a quote yesterday when one of the people testifying was asked, is there anything you would do differently? They answered no. That didn't necessarily sit well with people there. Does that speak to the system being broken, Lisa? You know, it's interesting because every witness basically who comes up is asked, you know, could anything have been done differently? And are there any recommendations that you have that you would give to the jury to make at the end of this? Because, as you know, the jury will make recommendations to try to stop something like this from happening again. And just about every person has said, you know, nothing else could have could have gone um, differently. We did everything correctly. They don't have any recommendations. And I, I guess what we're hearing is that, you know, things went wrong at the end. Those mass killings did happen. So obviously something had to have gone wrong. So uh, Daryl Burns, he's the sister of... Uh, Lydia Gloria Burns, who was killed in the attacks, he said, you know, he is asking those questions and he's asking them again when he does get to go up. And and he said that, you know, he wants these answers for the jury, but they're not getting them. So he's hoping maybe when they do recommendations, some of those will go to, well, if you don't know what went wrong, maybe you need to figure out what went wrong. So the other the other thing, and, and you wrote a really good story on this, we can find it on our website, uh, about the fact that there are community members who are part of crisis response, could be family wellness, 
uh, could be mental health therapist, grief support, domestic violence, you name it. There are a lot of workers that were called into this situation as it unfolded who we aren't hearing from in the inquest, and that's not sitting well with some people. Yeah, well, James Smith, they have their own wellness workers on the First Nation. They had a crisis response team on the First Nation, and those people, when they found out what ha- what was happening, they kind of jumped in to help. They uh, helped with first aid for people. They helped um, with the families that day as they're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. They helped um, at the triage center, depending on the situation. And like you say, we're not hearing from any of those people in the official inquest. Really, all we're hearing from in the inquest is the the officials, the government, the RCMP, EMS, the uh, health authority. There are actually only, if I'm counting this correctly, three witnesses out of 31 who are from the First Nation, and two of them weren't actually there on the day that this happened. So there are a lot of concerns about the witnesses and whose story is getting told here. And so, do, do, I guess a couple of things. Do we know how the witness list was was set up? And is there still room, or is it etched in stone who's going to testify, and these are people that we won't hear from? Well, when I spoke to Clive Wayhill, he's the chief coroner. He helped kind of put everything together. He said that they didn't get a lot of people from the First Nation, in part because they kind of wanted to shield them from this process. They wanted to uh, protect them from having to relive that trauma. But the people I spoke to, they were perfectly willing to talk to the media about what it was that they heard and saw and did that day. So it would seem to me they likely would have been willing to speak to the inquest. Talking with Lisa Schick this morning, senior reporter for uh, for this inquest that is going on and following this. You know, on that topic, Lisa, I can't help but think being proposed, and, and I'm not saying suggesting this is what happened, but being offered the opportunity prior to the inquest versus sitting in the inquest, listening to the testimony, kind of internalizing it for people that were there that day may shift their mind, right? It may It may have, in some cases, compelled people who off the start, didn't necessarily feel like they needed to speak. It it may compel them to want to say something. I'm, a ge- I'm guessing that could be an effect that people are having it by listening into these stories. Certainly there are people who, as you say, they're sitting there and they're hearing what's being said and they're getting frustrated because what they experienced on that day isn't being talked about or they're hearing things that they're saying, you know, that's, that's not what actually happened. That's not what I saw. So they're they are coming out and they are talking to us because they're not, they feel hearing the right things coming out in the inquest. You know, one thing I'm curious as I, I listen and watch your reports on this, um, I'm curious from my old position in policing, I feel like sometimes the different parts of the justice system do a bad job of communicating with one another. So you've now heard information from parole officers and boards, correctional officers, penitentiary officers. Is the handoff of information, in your opinion, has it was it adequate in this case? Was the information flowing, communication with one agency to another, or was that part of the downfall? Well, it, we're, we're not hearing anybody in the inquest say, oh, I didn't get that information, that wasn't given to me. They're not outright talking about any failures in that sense, but it's it's kind of in the gaps, right? We're hearing from other people that, 
you know, this system isn't as smooth as maybe it could be in their experience, so they want to hear about those things. For example, uh, Miles was originally in the provincial uh, jail system, and then he moved to federal prison uh, when some other charges went through. So like the handoff of his files from provincial jail to federal jail, we didn't hear anything about really how that happened. It was just the intake parole officer saying, we got some files, I gathered some things, and I put together my report. So there are maybe some gaps in that way of what we're seeing uh, and what we're hearing at the inquest. You know, this reporting that you're doing for us, Lisa, is really helping us, I think, understand where we're likely to see recommendations from the jury. And uh, that's something that we will hear next week. Are we still thinking it's going to be wrapped up by by the end of the week next week, Lisa? I'm expecting so. The, the schedule that they've given has maybe Tuesday or Wednesday as the last day for witnesses. We are a couple of witnesses behind at this point. But even if we get to Tuesday, Wednesday, I wouldn't expect it to take several days to get recommendations from the jury. So we should be wrapped up probably before the end of next week. All right. Before we let you go, what's on the agenda for today? Well, today and tomorrow, we're going to be hearing from a pathologist, the people who actually did the autopsies on those people who died in these stabbings. And they're going to be talking about, you know, what they saw, the kind of injuries that they cataloged on these people and uh, what it did to their bodies, how they died. Another heavy day, Lisa. Thanks so much for uh, checking in with us as well, and we will uh, touch base with you tomorrow. Thank you. Senior reporter Lisa Schick at the inquest into the murders on James Smith Green Nation and nearby Weldon, and uh, man, some heavy stuff being covered there. This is being touted as likely the largest inquest in not only Saskatchewan history, but Canadian history. So we're... Uh, we're watching history unfold, and uh, again, we appreciate what Lisa's doing to help us understand what is being testified to and how it's affecting this devastated community that sits by, listens, and likely relives a lot of those tragic moments that happened back on September 4th of 2022. You're listening to 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Well, coming up just after 9 o'clock, we're going to have a good conversation about grocery shopping. We uh, saw a real significant change by Loblaws in the last week. They decided they were going to discontinue with their 50% off practice that they had. Then they heard screams, cries, and outrage, and they decided to reverse their decision, which I give them a ton of credit for. I, I don't think you normally would see big business go back on a decision like that, so clearly they listened to what the customers were saying. So we're going to check in with Sylvain Charlebois, who is the professor and works in food distribution and policy at Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And then we're going to talk shopping tips. I got a story from a buddy of mine where, believe it or not, he says he actually got money back instead of paying for a couple of steaks. So uh, I'll share his story, but you've probably got some tips. We threw this on Facebook Dozens of you weighed in last night and through the morning on this topic. We want to hear your thoughts coming up in a second right here on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.